Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Uh, we have the privilege now to open God's Word together. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage Park. Uh, our normal preaching pastor, Trent, is actually out this week. Uh, he is currently on the road with his family uh, to Pine Cove Family Camp. They go up there for a week. They do it every summer uh, and just have a chance to refresh and hopefully go grow closer together as a family and then grow closer uh, to the Lord as well. So please keep them in your prayers this week as they do that. Uh, we will continue today in our, our series on Amos. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Um, Trent asked me actually a while back, he said, hey, on the 12th of June, are you available to preach? And I said, sure, I think I can do that. Uh, and then I read Amos 5, and I was like, can I trade? Um, it's a difficult passage, and if you've been walking with us through this book, that's not surprising because these are all difficult passages to read sometimes. They contain difficult truths. But we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed, and all of it is useful for teaching and correction and re, uh, rebuke and reproof and for us to grow in Christ's likeness. So we want to uh, go to Amos and see what he says, what his message was to Israel, and then how that applies to us. Uh, but then also know that even in the midst of uh, what can be a pretty bleak passage, there is hope, uh, and there is hope all through Amos because that is how our God operates and so we'll get there. But if you would open your Bibles to Amos 5, if you don't have a Bible, uh, but would like one, there's some on the, the side of the tech booth back there. Uh, you are welcome to go back and grab it and take that with you. Uh, afterwards, we'd love for you to have that as a gift uh, from us to you. And then if you're a user of the Bible app, uh, you can log on and find our live event there. And it's got some notes to help you track along. Um, before we read the passage, one thing I did want to say is we're going to tackle it a little bit differently just to kind of help you find your bearings. This particular passage in Amos is structured kind of like a mountain. Like he builds up to a point that happens kind of in the middle of what he's talking about. And then you have the slope up and then he has his main kind of emphasis and then you have a slope that goes down. And along that way, he actually repeats his themes. He picks up the same themes and then on the front end, he'll talk in kind of generalities, and then on the way down on the second side, the parallel passage tends to have the specifics uh, and elaborate on what he meant in the first part. So what we're going to do uh, is kind of take the parallel passages together and then work our way into the middle where Amos, uh, kind of where the hope and the, the good news is found. Uh, but before we start doing that, uh, I did want to read it through just straight. And so if you have it open, uh, we'll start in verse 1. And it says, Hear this word that I take over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out with a thousand uh, shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over into Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall become to nothing." Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into morning, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you have, shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict, 
uh, sorry, afflict the righteous and take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live, so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice at the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, and all the squares thus shall be wailing, and on all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through in your midst, says the Lord. Amen. So this sounds probably familiar if you were here last week. Amos picks up a lot of the same themes and same accusations that he had in chapter 4 against Israel. Amos is speaking for God to the people of Israel. And in chapter 4, Trent last week preached that God, had, Amos' message was saying, hey, God sent these warnings to us because of their sin, because of their disobedience. God sent continued warnings to try and shake them awake and call them to come back to God. But none of them were listened to. God sent famine. God sent disease. God sent drought. God sent wars. But none of that caused Israel to repent and come back. And after each of these kind of sayings that God sent this warning, uh, there's a refrain in chapter 4 says, Yet you did not return to me. So Amos here in chapter 5 picks up and says, Hey, because we never returned, because you wouldn't listen to God's warnings, there is a judgment coming on Israel. This message is the culmination of their failure to be obedient. The result of their long disobedience and refusal to turn. And it's not a happy scene. It's bleak. But as always, like we said, it's not without hope. And we'll get there. Let's start at verses 1 through 3. It's Amos says this again. Hear the word that I take over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise as the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. This starts off, you see the, the word in verse 1, that this is a lamentation. Uh, it's a lament, which is a genre of Hebrew poetry and song. It's a song that was sung at a funeral. So for us, you know, we know that there are kind of songs that you hear at various points. Like if you go to a wedding, you can kind of guess some of the playlist. You're going to hear the wedding march. You're going to hear maybe another song or two. If you go to a graduation, you're going to hear certain songs that are just traditionally to be played at these events. A lament, uh, or a lament was a song that you sing at a funeral. It's to mourn the loss of a loved one or someone that's cherished. But it, all throughout the Old Testament prophets, they have this habit of taking laments and turning them to not only mourn just loss of an individual, but to kind of look toward the future and mourn the death of the nation of Israel or of Judah because of their sin and disobedience. It's to express their mourning over their failure to repent and return to God. Last week at the end of chapter 4, one of Amos's words was, Hey, Israel, prepare to meet your God. And here in chapter 5, he's saying, this is what that day is going to look like. And it's not pretty. There's a lot of kind of image of battle and war. In the chapter, or I'm sorry, in verse 3, uh, it talks about cities sending out a thousand or cities sending out a hundred uh, like they would to march to a battle. And what you see at the end of it is that not many of them come back. There's destruction over the men that go out uh, to fight. They lose this battle. It's obliteration, and it's even more shocking if you were a listener in Amos' uh, original day. This would have shocked you because things were really good as far as they could tell. They looked around, and economically, the rich were doing well. The powerful uh, had wealth. They accumulated wealth. P- 
politically, they had stability. If you read uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings and kind of trace the history of Israel, uh, stability was hard to come by oftentimes. It was kind of up and down and uh, a lot of political intrigue and all that. But under, at this point, they had Jeroboam II, who was one of the longest reigning kings of Israel. He established stability. Uh, and then he was militarily strong. Uh, under previous kings, Israel had actually lost land. They'd had a lot of defeats. But in Second uh, Kings, it says Jeroboam was able to reestablish the borders. He went out and he won victories. And so if you were an Israelite, you were looking around going, hey, things are pretty good right now. And it's against this backdrop that Amos comes and says, hey, judgment is coming. There is going to be defeat. There's going to be destruction that's going to come. And they felt secure and healthy and the future was bright. Uh, but Amos brings a message of coming doom. And he, he closes this passage at the end back to underline how complete that destruction is going to be. If you can jump down to verse 16, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in the streets they shall say, Alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. The repetition of the first couple of verses where it talks about squares and streets and vineyards and farmers, what that's trying to emphasize is there's no place in the nation that's going to be untouched by this. You're not safe if you're in the city with the squares and the streets. You're not safe if you're in the country with vineyards and farmers. So this entire country is going to be affected by this uh, calamity. And what causes this, what causes all the wailing and the mourning is the conclusion of verse 17 where it says, for, it's because uh, I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. This isn't just uh, circumstances that have gone poorly. This is a judgment that God is saying he will bring on Israel. And I don't think it's any uh, uh, coincidence that the words that Amos uses to uh, prophesy about this coming judgment uh, reflects and kind of echoes another big event in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel, one of the foundational uh, things that happened in their national history was the exodus. It defined their national identity. God's rescuing them from Egypt and delivering them out of slavery. And the climactic point of the Exodus is the tenth plague, where God struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians, where God passed over the Israelites and brought destruction on the enemies uh, of God, on Israel's enemies. And this made them confident. Israel looked and said, look at how God rescued us. Look at how God delivered us before. And they felt that God would always judge their enemies and protect them because they were the covenant people of God. Uh, we'll get to this next week when E.J. Kemper comes and preaches. But in verse 18, uh, one of the things that Amos gets after them for is because there were people in Israel that were looking forward to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is, shows up a lot in the prophets as this day that God brings judgment and justice on the world. And so what he's saying in, for these people of Israel that were looking forward to it is they were looking to that day and saying, hey, when God brings us, finally everybody else is going to get what's coming to them. Like, look at these other nations that are so wicked. Look at these other places. Uh, man, God is going to get after them, and they have it coming. But Amos, in verse 18, says, don't look forward to it. Fear that day, because it's coming for you, too. You are not exempt from that. So here, just like God went out amongst the Egyptians, in Exodus 12, uh, verse 30, it says that, uh, God went out amongst the Egyptians, so that the, the Egyptians so that there was a great cry in Egypt, for there were none... Uh, not a house where someone was not dead. In the same way that God had done that against his enemies, God would now do that amongst his people because of their sin and disobedience, that God would go out in their midst and bring judgment and justice. 
So how do they respond? You have this message of, uh, man, it's not just that you don't feel secure because you're God's covenant people. One of the commentators I read this week said that Amos's message here was saying, hey, you feel like you are Israel, but you are actually just another Egypt. At their most secure, they had no idea how close they were to destruction, which is exactly, if you read the history, what happens. That 30 years later, Syria comes in and God uses this nation to destroy Israel and bring his judgment that he prophesied would come for the disobedience. And so then uh, Amos makes this pivot now. He goes to, okay, so how are we then to respond in light of this? In light of this message of judgment and destruction, how do we act? Do we be fatalistic? Well, God said it's coming, so we may as well just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's make the best of it. No. Are they supposed to rail against God? God, this is so unfair. How could you use this other evil nation that don't know you against your own people? No, Amos gives the correct response in verse 4. He says this, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter Gilgal. Or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall become nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. The call Amos has, even in the midst of a message of destruction, the call is to seek God, to chase after God. And he doesn't yet define what that looks like. Instead, he starts by saying what it's not. Uh, some of these places, if you were here last week, again, they sound familiar. Bethel and Gilgal, we talked about them last week. They were shrines that were set up, uh, kind of important places of worship for Israel at that time. They had significance from Israel's history, and they had set up kind of places that people would take pilgrimages. And Amos, one of his constant accusations is they think that just because they are doing this religious motion, they are going through uh, the motions making a pilgrimage here, they think, okay, me and God must be cool because I did the thing that I was supposed to do. I went to Gilgal, I went to Bethel and made my sacrifice. But in chapter 4, he says, you go to these places and you're not seeking God. You go to these places and you actually multiply your transgressions. He says, these aren't places of worship, they're actually places of continued sin for you. And so here he says, seek God, don't seek after these religious experiences and these places that you go through to go through the motions. He says, they aren't going to survive the coming judgment either. They will be destroyed just like the nation will be. And she says, kind of turns it on its head, uh, ironically, this is Bethel uh, historically was the place that um, Jacob had met God, where his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, as the nation, the, the patriarch started to move towards uh, the multiplication and becoming the, God's people. And he says, that important place that you think is so great will come to nothing and then Gilgal uh, was the place that Joshua and the Israelites crossed into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River, kind of stepped foot on this land that God had promised them, and set up a, you know, basically an important place in their national history. And so people would go there because this place, look at the great thing that God has done for us at this place. And here Amos says, kind of ironically, hey, the place that we came into the land, that place is going into exile too. Like there's nothing that's going to escape that. And so if religious, import, religious performance isn't enough, what is? That's where he returns in the parallel passage in 14. Uh, he says, Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Seeking God means that we seek good and not evil. It's not about religious experience or religious emotions or religious activity. It's about a character and a heart position that's towards good and towards God. 
He says kind of this weird phrase we'll return in a minute that seek to establish justice at the gate. It's not a location that we're called to to go. It's a character that God has called them to have. And he contrasts this uh, in verse 7 where he says, this is what God has called you to, be a people that seek good and hate evil. Uh, But let's look at who Israel actually has become in verse 7. It says, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. So we'll recap real quick. First, Amos' message in uh, chapter 5 is that judgment is coming. And then he says, okay, how do we respond in light of God's judgment? We seek God. And then three, he shifts here. He shifts to why this judgment is coming. This is where he gets to his accusations against the things that Israel, uh, how they are sinning and what they are actually doing. He says, Israel, uh, you are those that turn justice into wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. And this is, uh, like a lot of the prophets, this is poetry, so it's imagery, trying to paint word pictures. Uh, But what is he actually talking about here? Uh, He says, you turn justice into wormwood. Wormwood is something that shows up eight times in the Old Testament. um, And each time that it shows up, it's always connected to bitterness. Uh, For instance, in Proverbs chapter 5, it says, For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, as sharp as a two-edged sword. It's kind of a, something that's it's an uh, analogy. It's something that called to mind this vivid imagery. Wormwood was actually a plant. Uh, it's not wood at all. It's an herb uh, that was known for, as you can guess, a bitter taste. But if you were to eat it, it would leave that taste in your mouth. But not only that, in big enough doses, it's actually toxic or even fatal to people. And so what the image that Amos is saying here in this vivid imagery is saying you're taking justice, something that's meant to be sweet, and making it bitter. You're taking something that's meant to bring healing and relief and making it toxic and even fatal. Something that was meant to be so good is at best bitter and worst deadly. And he's saying you cast down righteousness to earth. The, the, the picture here is taking something that should be esteemed, taking something that should be valued, and just casting it on the ground like it's of no consequence. There's no respect for it. Uh, growing up in, when I was, I think, in elementary school, uh, one of the things that they let students help with sometimes was uh, taking putting the flag up and taking it down at the end of the day. Uh, and I remember kind of as a young kid doing that, getting to help with that a few times. Uh, and part of that process is, you know, they'd have an adult with us because you shouldn't let a, you know, second grader at a flagpole unattended will probably lift up a kid. Um, but uh, one of the things that they kind of said is, hey, when you take the flag down, you're going to fold it in this way. You're going to take care. You're going to respect it. And one thing that they, you know, were very high on and kind of reminded us often is like, Try not to let the flag touch the ground. You know, do everything you can to hold it uh, up. And the idea there is not that the flag itself, the material was any uh, special value. It was just cloth that had been put together. But the idea is that the flag represented something that was worthy of esteem. It represented the values and ideals of our country. It represents uh, the sacrifice that many people gave in order to have this country that we know it. And so they said, don't let something that should be held in high honor touch the ground. And that's kind of the same thing he's saying here, is that righteousness, this thing that should be esteemed and sought after, he's just casting it aside like it's of no value. So how exactly are they doing this? This is what Amos picks up then in verse 10. It says, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. There's that phrase again, that in the gate. What does that mean? So in the gate, for in ancient Israel, the gate was the place that you went to settle disputes. It was essentially their courtroom. 
And so you would go there if you had a dispute against somebody else, if you had a grievance, if you had uh, something that needed to be resolved, you would go and hopefully have your case judged by its merits and arrive at the right and true decision. That's why Amos, in the passage we read a minute ago, says, seek to establish justice at the gate. Seek to have a system that is fair and equitable. But here he's saying that the Israelites are those that hate him who reproves or corrects at the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. They wanted a broken system that benefited them rather than arrived at the truth. And it says in verse 11, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, just like in chapter 4 where it talked about you're oppressing those that are less fortunate than yourselves to enrich yourself, uh, Amos comes back to that same sin. He says, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you do, shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. Again, you have enriched yourself, but because of this judgment is coming, you will not get to enjoy the fruits of your sin. And then he says in verse 12, he kind of summarizes this. He says, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy at the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. He kind of summarizes their sins and says, you persecute those who do right, and you're corrupt. You take a bribe, and you turn aside those that come seeking justice. The one question I, I thought about this week is, why does God signal uh, or single out Israel here? Because Israel's far from the, other country, the only country that behaves like this. They're far from the only country that would be guilty of these same sins. So why does God send Amos to Israel to bring this message of judgment? It's because Israel had a special calling on their nation, on how they were supposed to react. They were the people of God. They had been given God's law. God had set them uh, to be a people that reflected his character to the world. He says, be holy for I am holy. Be righteous for I am righteous. And righteousness is supposed to flow out in things like a just society. That Their political, their uh, professional, and their personal interactions with each other were supposed to stem from the law that God had given them. That was supposed to from, come from God's character and the moral order he set up. They were supposed to follow that and be a light to the nations. They were supposed to reflect the character of God to the world around them. But Amos's accusation here is you don't reflect God's character. You reflect the same darkness of the world but even worse, you do that and then you baptize what you're doing and say, hey, I'm going to Bethel. Hey, I'm going to Gilgal. I'm doing the thing that I need to do. So me and God should be good. We must be okay because I did uh, the religious motion, even though their heart is far from what God has called them to be about. Um, let's pull this forward for just a minute because this is the Old Testament. Uh, but in the New Testament, it doesn't change. We as God's people are called to reflect his character wherever we find ourselves In every day and age, and this includes, um, you know, seeking to have a just and a good society, a society that looks righteous, be people of righteousness. Um, and I think it's strange that in today's day, the, the concept of social justice has become controversial, uh, especially in maybe especially in some Christian circles. Um, listen, God is a God of justice, and so as Christians, we should seek justice, both individual and social. But I think the problem that sometimes arises is because it's not that justice is the problem. It's because our ideas of justice come from the world and not from the, what God's word says. And we are each tempted. We are each bombarded by voices that say, hey, this is what it looks like to be right and good. This is how you should live your life. And each one of us is tempted to listen to those rather than to hold those ideas up against God's word and say, God, show me what it is that we are to be 
about. Because everyone in the world can see you look at the world and say, this is not right, this is broken. Something is wrong with what is going on in the world. That's not a Christian message uniquely. We look and say there is something deeply wrong that's going on in the world. And everyone has an answer for that. Everyone has a different response to say, oh, this is, this is what's wrong and this is how we need to fix it. Each election cycle, uh, we are bombarded with really two different, radically different viewpoints of the world. But if you boil down their message to what's at the core, both sides are saying, hey, this is the problem and this is how we need to fix it. But the problem is both, if you're coming to the problems of the world without coming first to God and what God has revealed, then all we're doing is looking at the symptoms we see and trying to diagnose and then provide uh, the cure for it. It's like when you start to feel under the weather and then you go on WebMD and 15 minutes later you're like, I think it's terminal. <laughs> you know, like how much time do I have left? Have we updated the will? Like this is the problem is that the world comes to say and they say, uh, everyone has a different response. You'll hear people say, hey, all the problems are economic. All the problems are racial. All the problems are a breakdown of individual responsibility. All of our problems are the breakdown of the family. All the problems are whatever it is. And they say, well, then if that's the problem, this is how we fix it. No, God's word says the fundamental disease that we're dealing with is the sinful human heart that exists in the soul of every human being. And everything else that we see, yes, they're problems, but they're symptoms of that sinfulness that resides in our hearts. So yes, we can talk about them, we can address them, we can try and figure out uh, what to do as a collective to, to make these things better. But honestly, that's palliative care for a dying world outside of the grace shown to us in Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we need to enter in and have that message for the world. Because see, one thing that we need to sometimes repent of and be aware of is that we are all really good, or let me say this, I am really good at figuring out what everyone else's problem is. You know, like, I can look at someone who doesn't look like me, vote like me, uh, spin like me, live like me, worship like me, whatever like me, and I can say, hey, see that person over there? Here's their problems. Like, let me tell you what it is. I've got a PhD in looking at other people and seeing where they've gone wrong. But so often, I can't even spell when I look at my own problems. It's so hard for me to look at the things that I take for granted, some of my assumptions, and lay them before God and say, where is it that I have gone wrong? Where is it that I need to bring in my ideas of justice, my ideas of righteousness, and see how God can correct and rebuke me. This is what Jesus meant when he said, hey, before you take the speck out of the eye of your brother, deal with the log in your own eye. He's not saying don't deal with the speck, don't speak into the areas that we need to speak in, but he's saying we've got to be willing also to look at ourselves and to lay ourselves open before God's word and say, where do I need to grow? Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to change? It's David's prayer. God, search me and know me. See if there's any offensive thing in me. We need God's help to do that because we're blind to it in our own. And this is Amos's accusation against Israel. He said, you can look at all the other nations around you and say, list out their sins, but you have completely lost sight of God. You have adopted a different view of right and wrong, and you have no idea that you've even done it. You need to return and be like God. And I think uh, the same thing that if we hear it, sometimes we need to do is be willing to lay our soul before the Lord, lay our soul before other Christian brothers and sisters and say, where is it that I am missing the boat? How can God grow and refine and shape and change me? And then he, he shifts from describing uh, Israel's character to describing who God is. It's not, this is who Israel is. Now, who is this God that's bringing this justice and this judgment? In verse 8, he says, He who made the Pleiades and Orion, which is two uh, constellations of stars, uh, he who made them and turns the deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. 
who makes the destruction flash forth against the strong so that the destruction comes upon the fortress. So he pivots from describing the character of Israel to describing who God is, but he doesn't start with God's character. He starts with his might. He starts with his power. He says, Israel, you feel strong, you feel secure, but like, this is before a God who set the stars in the sky. It's before a God that is sovereign over day and night. No matter how strong you may feel, it pales in comparison. It is not a candle in outer space to the power and might of God. That there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to withstand the might that God has. And then right in the middle, right at the end of verse 8, is the apex, is the pinnacle, is the hope. Amos says there, the Lord is his name. It's five words for us. It's two words in Hebrew. And it packs an enormous weight. Because judgment here, this dark passage, these Doom that is coming does not come from a nameless, all-powerful deity. It comes from the Lord. It comes from Yahweh, God's covenantal name that he's revealed to his people, Israel. So you, you may notice if you look there in verse 8, um, the Lord kind of looks a little funny. It's a capital L and then smaller caps, typically O-R-D. Um, that's actually a kind of English trick to let you know what word's being translated there. Uh, there's two words that show up as Lord in the Old Testament. One is Yahweh. Uh, and then one is Adonai. Adonai is more generic, just for a ruler or a lord. And so sometimes that's applied to God. And if a, that's there, it's typically a big L and then just normal O-R-D in lowercase. Uh, but anytime you see it in all caps, what that's saying is the word that they're translating is Yahweh, God's covenantal name that he has uh, revealed to his people. It says, this is who I am. This is my character. This is the God who rescued them from Egypt, who gave them the law so that they would know how to live. This is the God that when they were at Sinai, he shows up before Moses and describes himself. We would not know God's character unless he tells us who he is, and he does exactly that in Exodus 34, uh, verse 5. It says, the Lord, uh, it says, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, this is an image of a terrifyingly powerful God that no one can stand before. But it's also the image of a God that is loving and good and kind and merciful and that does nothing outside of those characteristics. He is just and he brings judgment against sin. He must. Uh, but justice is just an extension of his fundamental goodness that he shows to us. It's an extension of his love for his world and his creation and for people. Uh, it reminds me of a passage in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, which is a famous series of books. I would imagine most of you are familiar with them. Uh, we're actually reading them to our son right now. But there's a passage in the first book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, where, well, the, the, the story centers around these children that kind of end up in this fantasy land of Narnia, uh, and it's full of Christian themes and illusions. Uh, but one of the characters, Aslan, is a uh, lion, but he's very clearly, if you've ever read it, a Christ figure. He's meant to represent Christ. Um, and these school children have found themselves in Narnia and are trying to familiarize themselves. And one of the Narnians is describing uh, Aslan, this lion, to Lucy, the youngest. And it scares her. And she says, well, is he safe? It's a lion. And the response uh, that the Narnian says is, safe? 
Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And that's the message here of Amos, is that, man, this, isn't, this is power that we cannot stand up against, but it's mitigated by God's goodness and grace. That's why Amos can say, seek the Lord and live. It may be that God will be gracious to us. But we have a better message from where we stand that God may be gracious if we seek him. We know that God will be gracious. We are certain of it. Not just because God revealed who he is and he's trustworthy on his word, but because God showed us his grace. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, stepped into flesh as Jesus Christ that took on this world, that he lived the perfect life that I should have lived, and he went to the cross to take a punishment that I deserved. That he, there at the cross, that God was both just and the justifier. That sin received what was its due. It received justice. That I was shown grace and unmerited favor by God. That I was made a child of God. And that's not just my story. It's not just an offer that was extended to me. It's extended to all that come to Jesus and cast on him our cares and our sins and our failures and say, God, I need your grace and forgiveness. He extends it to all of us. Last week, Trent termed this uh, God's heart for return. It's kind of his sermon point. Uh, and that same heart that said, we issued warnings and you didn't listen, but God's heart was for return. That's the same heart that is here, that even in the midst of a judgment and even in the midst of the darkness that will come and the situation that they will go through, God's heart is for return. He, even when he's pronouncing judgment, he issues a call for us to come to him. If he wasn't just, if we didn't, deal with sin, then he wouldn't really be good either. But God has not left us on our own. He himself provided the means of salvation, provided our means of escape. And so the invitation to us then is just to respond to that for the first time, maybe if we've never come to Christ, to lay our sins at his feet and say, God, this is all I have. There's a hymn that I'm blanking on right now that says the only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And that's the invitation. Just come before Christ. And then if we have seen him in faith, if we have responded, then the invitation to us is to try and live out God's righteousness and his justice in the place that God has given us. To be those that shine and reflect God's character and invite others to come and see and taste that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for even the hard text of Scripture, even the text that um, we don't put on coffee mugs and we don't put on uh, T-shirts or wall hangings, Lord, but it is the same God. It is the same. uh, It flows from the same character that we know, that the one who acts in judgment also acts to redeem and to save. And, Lord, I pray that we would be those that respond to what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, that we would move toward him, that we would put our our cares and our failures and our, our longings and everything we are on the shoulders of Jesus, and that we would then walk out renewed, adopted, uh, repentant people, seeking every day to look more and more like Christ, Lord. Uh, may you be glorified in all that we are. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for all you have done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.